Have you ever had so much caffeine your very nature of reality is in question? I'm there right now. <laughs> Welcome to episode 4 of Miscellany Media Reviews. And yes, this episode will still happen, my pseudo-delirium aside. On today's episode, we will be discussing the 2018 anime, Violet Evergarden. It was originally a Japanese light novel series written by Kana Akatsuki and illustrated by Akiko Takasi. It did extraordinarily well and was incredibly well received, which made it ripe for an anime adaptation produced by Kyoto Animation and released in the winter 2018 season. Now, I'm sure you've likely noticed that I'm all over the place. I don't stick with just one thing or one medium or one art form. This is just how I like living my life, I guess. Specialization never appealed to me. Because to me, it meant missing out on all the things that didn't fit in that small box. And where's the fun in that? To me, a jack-of-all-trades and master-of-none might not be as useful, but is definitely happier. And as the supposed jack, I'm the one who has to live with the consequences. When I first saw the promotional material for Violet Evergarden, I was excited. The artwork was beautiful, and I had heard amazing things about the light novel series. In my part of the world, however, light novels can be somewhat difficult to get. In fact, you, dear listeners, might not even know what a light novel series is. Think of it as a series of illustrated novellas. It's not a completely accurate comparison, but that analogy will get you through this review. Point being, this anime had so much going for it. Amazing promotional art, amazing source material, and an amazing studio behind it. I was so excited, only to have my heart sink when it was revealed that Netflix bought the distribution rights. Now, if you don't see why that would be a bit of a problem, it's probably because you aren't that familiar with the typical anime watching experience. So let me give you a brief rundown. Anime, like all television programming, is first aired on a station in its country of origin. If you don't live in that country and you don't have access to that television station, what are you going to do? Are you just out of luck? For a while, legally speaking, you were. But now, to meet the demands of global audiences, companies like Crunchyroll were founded. They buy the global distribution rights from anime production companies and stream each episode shortly after its release. And by shortly, we're talking a few hours. Considering the time difference, for some anime fans, this may even be an improvement, because it means not having to stay up late to watch their favorite shows. But when Netflix jumped into that game, along with a couple other companies, they decided, forget this established rules and these contextual norms, we're going to do things our own way, and drop all the episodes all at once for people to binge. At least, that's what they've been doing in the US. This might not be the case in other countries, I've heard conflicting things. And yeah, binge watching is great, I do it far too often, but anime seasons move quickly. Seasons come in rapid succession, each with a swarm of new shows competing for your attention. Watching each episode as it comes out is part of what it means to watch anime, and I suspect it's because that's the only way to keep your head above the proverbial waterline. Now, if you have to wait for a show, you might not get around to seeing it at all. As if to be a case in point, once I heard the announcement, I was downtrodden. 
only to fall into a different entertainment rabbit hole and completely forget about it. Yeah, this show I wanted to see so badly was just no longer on my radar. Look, I'm not proud that this happened, but it happened. One day in early April, I came home from work and logged into Netflix to unwind after not a stressful day at work, but a stressful bus ride home. Side note, I'm a big supporter of public transit up until the bus driver has road rage and then my resolve wavers. But lo and behold, on that front landing page of Netflix, the promoted show, the one whose banner is slapped across the top of the page, was Violet Evergarden. Now, maybe I should have had some concerns or reservations about how accurate Netflix's recommendation algorithm is, but in that moment, I thought that this concern could wait for another time. My enthusiasm for the show was immediately revived, and I took right to it. And my word, that show is worth the wait. That show is, in every sense of the word, beautiful. The show follows the titular character, Violet Evergarden, in a very in media res fashion. Violet has already lived quite a difficult, violent life. And as you see her backstory, it makes you wonder why isn't her backstory the actual story? It's an important part of the show, but I mean, why isn't it the focal point? She was a remarkable soldier, an outright weapon of war, beyond capable and fiercely loyal to her commander. She knew no ideology, only violence, strength, and survival. That part of her story, particularly with the show's quality of animation, would have been a wildly successful show. Instead, we pick up with Violet after the war. Her body has suffered intense damage, but these changes in her life and the heroism that came before don't seem to register in her mind. The war is over, but she remains a soldier, seeking orders from her beloved Major, Major Gilbert. She's never known true, peaceful civilian life. Consequently, she struggles to adapt to it, and at her first attempt at a life many would dream of, she instinctively rejects it, preferring a life of militaristic purpose and obedience over the gift she is being offered. Hodgins, a former commander who has been entrusted with her care and seemingly assumed it because of a sense of guilt born from that same war, brings her to his postal company to work, giving her the purpose and direction she needs right then. And work she does, as something called an auto-memory doll. Someone who ghostwrites for clients who maybe they can't type, maybe they want a stronger version of whatever it is they're working on, or maybe they can't really express themselves. You see a little bit of everything throughout the first part of the series, but Violet's clients run a very different gamut. They can write in the sense that they can string together words in a logical way. They can communicate an idea, but it's not the idea that really matters. It's the one they think they have to say. And that's where Violet comes in. You see, Violet didn't have a typical upbringing. And in fact, all the audience really knows is that she's been abused and broken her entire life, only to join the war as a sort of weapon because she had no sense of humanity, no understanding of what is human, and as an extension of that, no hesitation in killing other humans. She could do it pretty well. But as a result, now that she's a civilian, she has to learn everything as she goes about her daily life. 
Her resulting idiosyncrasies may make for a few awkwardly funny moments, or moments that are just outright awkward. She's just struggling to participate with the daily life around her, but in doing so, she helps her clients reject the social constraints that otherwise kept them from expressing themselves. You see, her mouth isn't inhibited as theirs are, so through her, their words can be set free. Of course, there's an important note that I should point out. This is only one of the many things that could be said about the series, but this one theme struck me the hardest. It hit home in a way all good art should. It struck the most visceral chord deep in my very soul. You see, communication is not my strongest suit. And by that, I don't mean that translating ideas that are in my head into sounds that then evoke thoughts in other people's heads, or to make them understand, usually in a workplace setting, a need or requirement that I have of them. No, I get along remarkably well at work and with my coworkers. Hey, I'm not even that bad at customer service stuff. Give me credit here. However, work stuff is something that I've learned to set apart as much as possible from everything else. And from what I've learned, it's best to have some sort of robotic coding to all your actions. There's checkboxes to hit and certain protocol that needs to be utilized for specific situations. If this, then that which happens to be super simplistic programmer's logic. And once you've done all the programming required to make your mental computer run the right way, it's pretty easy to get by. On the other hand, talking to another person is a more personal thing. Personal communication is difficult for me. And I find myself constantly worrying that I'm doing it wrong. You know, even saying that feels like I'm doing something wrong. Like those are forbidden words somehow. Like it's a cardinal sin to show such vulnerability because we have to always be perfect people doing perfect things while living perfect lives, rounding up anyway. But honestly, that's not something I can do. I just have a tendency of wearing my flaws on my sleeve, almost like Violet does. But back to me, there's many problems with how I communicate with my friends and family, but if I have to pick just one, it's that I generally don't communicate at all. I'm distant, horribly so, but it's not because I don't care or that I'm upset, not with them. I just don't want to bother people. Not even I don't want to be a burden, but I just don't want to bother you. Whatever negative emotions exist in this scenario are reserved specifically for me. Honestly, I have so much to say, but I genuinely feel as if I can't. And maybe by some standards I can't. It seems like the rest of the world all mutually agreed that these were the rules we had to live by, and while I don't remember ever being consulted on the matter or voting in some sort of referendum, the majority rules and all that. But can I just ask one question, one that this anime seems to ask? Wouldn't we all be happier if we were a little bit more open? And this isn't to say down with privacy, don't strawman my argument here. I'm talking about the things we want to say or would choose to say if the choice had been with us all along. If you could more freely share the things on your mind or the feelings in your heart, wouldn't you be happier? I ask myself this question a lot. 
When something is wrong, I hold it in rather than confiding the people who care about me because I'm afraid of being a burden or adding something to their long list of problems. Or if things are going great, I don't want to waste time conveying information that they may or may not care about. Maybe it's just a waste of time to them, or maybe it's annoying. Like when I want to talk about the things I love, like Violet Evergarden. To people who haven't seen it or have no interest in anime, I'm sure that would be pretty obnoxious. Or I think that's pretty obnoxious. Or I'm worried that it's pretty obnoxious. That's just the broad theme. To narrow in on something in particular, I have the tendency to say thank you a lot. Maybe too much. And I mean that this tendency goes beyond the cursory gratitude that you toss at any retail employee who handles your transaction or someone who holds a door open. No, when I say it in those instances, that doesn't bother me. In part because there is something reactive about it. Like the aforementioned if this then that logic. Like the other day I said this to somebody at work who had given me a task to do. If you listen to episode 2, you'll know that at another job, I assisted somebody who could only be considered a horrible boss. He made vague, tedious, and impossible demands, which I did my best to fulfill. Now, I work at a different place, but part of my responsibilities still include assisting someone thoroughly decorated in their field. One day, he asked me to make copies for him. And though I was in the middle of setting up for the office's weekly catered lunch, I was ready to drop everything and do it. Objectively unwise. But the sense of urgency and need to please was telling me it had to be this way. As I started off in that direction, he stopped me. No rush, he said. To which I replied, thank you. And it caught him off guard. Because why would I thank him? He was giving me a task that I probably didn't want to do and would not have done had I not been told to do it. But what I meant was, thank you for being reasonable. Thank you for seeing that I'm in the middle of something and have to put off that task for now. Thank you for being a good person to work for. Thank you for understanding that I'm not a tool for you to use or a thing for you to throw around however you want, but a person who's doing the best I can with so much going on. Generally speaking, when I get this way, it can be unexpected. I know. But I don't think it's ever been unwelcome. I don't think anyone's been unhappy that their kindness or good nature was acknowledged. And what about all those people that I wanted to thank but struggled to find the words to do so? Or people whom I did thank but maybe didn't say enough or include all the things I was thankful for? I was left silenced by the magnitude of act, gift, or gesture, and maybe I thought or could even convince myself that these things went without saying. But I don't agree with that now. This hesitation was just another barrier between me and others. And the conversations might have been hard or scary, much like the ones you see in Violet Evergarden, but they still would have been worth it. In many ways, the act of reclaiming one's voice is a way of restoring one's humanity, or an aspect of it. It's a way of stepping away from the artificial construct of the manufactured world, and it mirrors Violet's own growth from weapon of war to human being. All because she feels compelled to make sense of her beloved major's last words to her. 
Her title, Auto Memory Doll, is an odd one by some standards. But then again, what is a doll but a symbol of what is human? Which is what Violet is. She's a representation of a specific aspect of humanity. The figurative voice. Not the sounds that come out of the mouth, but the act of conveying thoughts. She translates, she represents, and she restores. That's the main theme that struck me when I was watching the first few episodes. Then comes the latter half of the season. Remember that intense backstory I told you about? Well, it becomes relevant later when the writers use it to sucker punch you in your very soul with a spiked gauntlet of doom. I've spent so much of this review talking about words, but once you get to episode 8, it's like words don't seem to matter anymore. Which essentially negates everything I just said. So I should have scrapped all those thoughts, right? I mean, I hadn't even written this episode yet. In fact, I hadn't even released the first episode of this show. This entire podcast was still in the planning stages. I only knew that if I did a podcast talking about the important things I see in the media around me, I wanted to do an episode on this anime. But I could scrap all those abstract thoughts about communication and not be any worse off for it. However, I didn't want to do that. I didn't think that by most standards I should do that. Those points were still incredibly important for me to say and maybe for you to hear. Then again, I'm not going to tell you what to think. Sure, obsession is not great, and it really shouldn't be a life strategy. But it's something I tend to do anyway. So no, I didn't want to give up on this idea of communication, which seemed so blatant in the first half of the season. And sure, a series could dramatically shift themes halfway through. In some ways, that might even be advantageous. I mean, it can give the story a new narrative push and keep the audience engaged. I just didn't think that's what happened here. After quite a bit of thought, I realized that the story of Violet Evergarden strikes at something brilliant. Something that I didn't realize. And I could only see that because I was so desperate to connect these two seemingly disconnected stories. We don't just communicate through words. Throughout the series, Violet is plagued by the last words the Major said to her. I love you, he had said. For anyone else, it seems straightforward. And that's the problem. Because when she asks someone what those words mean, nobody can give her an answer. It just never occurred to them to think about that. They were always words that could be taken for granted. But in a way, it's something he had been telling her as long as he'd known her. Something that helped her go from lifeless weapon to a person. So many pieces of herself came through his actions. She didn't even have a name when she was given to him. The Major named her, and through his care, he helped her find a literal voice after she'd been with him for a while. And then he took it further and taught her how to read and write. His actions communicated a thought to her, one that can't easily be communicated verbally. It resists phonetic sounds. It resists this almost reductive approach. 
Because rather than just saying things, words that Violet may not have responded to or understood given her background, the Major chose a form of communication that actively shifted the world around him, albeit in a limited space of influence. He started treating Violet like a person. Okay, maybe not a full adult, but like a much-beloved younger sister. He gave her care and attention. He looked out for her welfare and did his best to protect her from the horrors of war, despite their being in the army together, underneath commanders who did not share his views, and despite all the things she had already done. In this, I think I found what I love so much about this show, why I've watched it over and over again in the short time since its release. I see far too much of myself in Violet. I see a magnified version of the hurt and pain I carried for far too long. And if it wasn't magnified in this way, it could have gone unnoticed. In my case, it went unnoticed for a while. In episode one, I briefly alluded to the fact that college was an important time in my life because of all the changes that came with it that could have only come from such a dramatic shift. And in episode three, I went more into it. In Arizona, I didn't have a place, whereas in college I did. And I didn't so much make one, but found one. I'm reluctant to say too much more about this. I don't know, it's certainly tempting. If you don't know how podcasting works, I'm alone in a room with a microphone as I record this. I even put my cell phone on airplane mode just so I won't get random vibrations or beeps in my recording that my program audacity might not filter out. And I do have a package coming today, so that might not have been a good idea. But look, in this way, I'm completely alone. So I could say it. I could tell all these stories that I have. And yet I am making something that will live on the internet for all time. And while I avoid anything that might directly identify me, it certainly wouldn't be impossible to do so. But didn't I just advocate being more open? Yeah, but I also didn't condemn privacy. And I'm pushing that line right now. These stories involve other people. People who have their own sides and their own defenses and their own life stories and their own reasons for everything that happened. And I've said it before, I don't think any of these people are at fault for what happened. I just don't think the intent was there. All of these things should be their own to choose to share. And how can I set up someone for public shaming who never intended harm? Who I know never intended harm. So no, I don't think I can go into specifics about why I was so broken and shattered when I entered college. I just was. I had fallen apart and... I didn't know how to reassemble the broken pieces. Or more accurately, I didn't really know if I should bother doing so. In college, I found people who unintentionally helped me through all this. In college, I met people who showed me kindness when I didn't think I deserved it. <laughs> I had always been a bit on the sentimental side, despite everything. So when it was a professor who treated me this way, it was all the more striking. Whether or not you realize it, college professors have a lot on their plates. In a different way than teachers on other levels. In addition to all the teaching responsibilities, which can be intensive when you factor in having to devise their own classes from semester to semester, 
and having to adapt to teaching both undergraduates and graduates, there's a lot of other things they need to do. For some, they're the ones that keep the department going. They're the ones who advise the students, lay out the course standards and requirements, and herd all the figurative cats that are their co-workers. Then there are those who have their research to consider, which means doing the actual research and continually building up their name. Not only do they have to be the best in their field, but they need everyone to know it. It's incredibly time-consuming. And yet, they still put up with me, and still found the energy to be kind to me. In some ways, it should have gone against their better logic. It was not worth it to them. And yet, they were still kind. I can't express how much that means. Sure, they didn't always tell me that my negative view of myself was wrong. They didn't always verbally remind me that I was not an object, but a human being, albeit a young one. That I had the ability to choose my own life direction, to make my own choices, and to decide my own values. But they made it very clear that there was potential in me. That there was still something wonderful in me. Something that could be cherished. Watching the interactions between Major Gilbert and Violet in her flashbacks brought this memory back to me. He has no reason to revive Violet's spirits and every reason to let her stay a weapon of war. But he can't bring himself to do that despite all of his superiors pressuring him to continue her lifelong mistreatment. And while it may be callous to say this, she was already broken when they met. Broken by someone else, meaning he did not have the responsibility to repair her. He did not have to atone for any of his own wrongdoing. With him absent in the series, the audience can't be sure why he did this, but the show's artwork and framing suggests that it was just something in his perspective. That from that first moment, he chose to see her for all she could be, and would have been had life not intervened. Through his actions, he communicated that vision to her, one that would have otherwise resisted words. And I mean, it does resist words. When he asks her basic questions like, what gift does she want? Instead of just answering him, she tries to discern what he wants her to answer. So no, just speaking to her wouldn't have worked. It brought me back to those times in my life, and I spent a little bit of time thinking about those memories again. Sure, I still cherish these gifts, but as of late, and as life moves on, I don't think about it as much as I maybe should. Not obsess, sure, but give pause for all I have to be grateful for, for the life I was able to build up because of the care they showed me. Whether I was told this or shown this, the message they had for me was the same. I was a human being, and I needed to live happily, as happily as I could manage each day. Whether or not we know it, we need those affirmations, those silent assurances that we are human beings and that are worth caring for. I think it goes unnoticed because for so many of us, this state of being is never challenged, and so in many ways it's like breathing. When it comes easily, when it's guaranteed, we don't need to think about it. It's only when we struggle, when we choke, or when we're suffocating that we realize just how important it really is. There have been moments in my life that I've struggled to breathe. 
and those who helped me through it will forever have my gratitude and my loyalty. I will never be able to convey this to them. I can't put into words something that resists description, something that cannot be described, something whose power comes from being outside language. But true to character, Violet Evergarden does. In the end, in her last letter, good for her, but I'm still trying to find my way, my words, and my letter. On that note, words cannot express how incredible this show is or how incredible communication is for that matter. It's also a reminder of why the media we consume matters so much. It illuminates those shadows that lurk in the corner of our eye. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing. Or find us online at www.miscellanymedia.online. Thanks.